Thank you, Arlene. Thank you, Bev, Ben. Everybody who had anything to do with getting it to this point right here, I thank you so much. But especially Arlene for having such a long scripture reading. Yes, I picked that. See, we're in the middle of John 7 and 8 where Jesus was speaking at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And I pointed out to you last week that the Feast of the Tabernacles have two main themes, and the main theme is water and light. And in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, the uh, water of light is played out in the debate with the Bible students, the Bible believers, is who he's arguing with the very ones that Arlene mentioned today, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the Bible students. So I've come to call them the Bible believers is the ones that he is facing off with. Chapter eight, the debate shifts to light. The problem is, is that it's interrupted with this story. And it almost makes it sound like Jesus left the festival, the story happens, and then this happens on the next day, and it's not quite right. It doesn't, it doesn't really fit. If you have a modern translation, and, and, and Arlene can tell you, she was reading from the NIV, when she began that, it begins in verse uh, 53 of chapter seven, there's a bracket around it with a footnote on it. And the footnote says that this is not included in most of the ancient manuscripts. So when you read this in a modern translation, they'll keep it there, and I'm glad that they did. Okay, I'm glad that they did. It's a great, great story. And some scholars would say, well, maybe it doesn't belong. And what happened was later, when they were putting the Bible together, somebody cut and paste that story. So they got to the end of the Gospel of John, and they said, you know, we don't have the adulterous woman in here. We've got to put it somewhere. Why not put it here, in between these two chapters? It's almost like they cut and paste it. So I just want you to know that it's interesting that chapter 7 ended, remember, with Caiaphas making fun of Nicodemus, because Nicodemus actually stands up for Jesus and says, are, are we going to try this guy without hearing him first? And Caiaphas tries to shame him, remember? He said, surely you're not from Galilee also, are you? In other words, the, the origin of the Messiah, he can't be a Messiah because a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. So he tries to, to shame him, if you will. Surely you're not from Galilee. Search and you will see that no prophet is from Galilee. And then if you look, chapter 8, verse 12 fits right in there, doesn't it? Again, Jesus speaks up amongst this debate. Again, he speaks up saying, I am the what? I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of light. They've already gone through the water ceremony and I told you that for the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the, the temple is brilliantly lit up. These huge gallons and gallons, bowls of oil and it is just lighting up the temple to be able to be seen from years around. And in the same way that he pointed out that he was the water of life, he now points out that he's the what? That he's the light, the light of the world. So hang in there with me. I'm gonna leave the narrative of the adulterous woman where it is. And when we get done with Jesus' debate about being the light of the world, you tell me whether or not it belongs there or not. Even though it doesn't fit within the narrative, even though it doesn't fit in the timeline itself. Okay? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? The light of life. 
We looked at the Exodus last week and the prophecies about the Messiah and what the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to. And the light theme has no fewer prophecies. It says, the Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people. Go on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out so that people may drink. Moses did so right in the midst of the elders of Israel. Jesus says, I'm that water. The water that saved you in the wilderness, the water of life, God is that water. I will stand before you. Then he also said that, that, that he will do so in the sight. And, and also, in, in then in Numbers 14, it says, they'll tell the inhabitants of the land they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, are in the midst of this people you are. And they've seen you face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go in front of them in a, pal- a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of what? And a pillar of light by night. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is to praise God for how he led them in the wilderness. And how were they able to travel and defeat the heat of the day? Was that he provided light for them in the darkness. So Jesus says, just as he said that I'm the water of life, he also says, I am this light. I am the light of the world. And if you think about it, when he talks about light, he's going back to the very basics and the fundamentals of who he is and who the Father is and where he comes from. It isn't by accident that the first day of creation, what was brought forth? Let there be what? Let there be light. We use the analogy of light and darkness But in creation, it isn't light and it isn't dark. As a matter of fact, it says that the earth was without form and void. We assume that it was dark because there was nothing there. But if you could go one step even further than darkness, you would have nothing. And it's like dark and light, but it isn't dark and light. See, because it's going to be a couple of days later that he brings light right, of what we call light, the sun, the moon, the stars. That doesn't come till later. It's the nothingness that God speaks into. It's the nothingness that he walks into. And so then he's able to proclaim what just happened. There was nothing, now there's what? Now there's me, God says. Now there's presence. Let there be presence. Here I am. Before God, there was nothing. The light of the first day was him. Because everything that happens after that happens because of God's presence. His spirit, his presence moves on the waters of chaos, the waters of nothing, and all of a sudden, things begin to happen. And for the next six days, it all happens. Why? He has to be present first. Again, he's not, he's not uh, in another location calling this out and creation is happening over here. It's happened because he has left his throne wherever it is and he's walked to this particular place and he said, let's let something begin to happen here. Let there be light. So Jesus is telling him, I'm the light of the world. I'm God's very what? I'm God's very presence. And this shouldn't be new to us. He began the entire gospel this way. And the word became flesh 
and walked among us. And that word that he spoke about was the word of God himself, the word of creation, his presence, his power, his protection, his guidance of Israel in the Exodus, and also his complete, absolute creative power in creation. This is him. Jesus is claiming all that for himself. He understands himself to be God's presence. He understands him to be this story in the Exodus, this fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the light of the world. So after proclaiming all that, and the light goes on for a lot of us when we begin to say, wow, that's what he's talking about. When we begin to look at the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, we say, wow, that's what's happening. And guess where the Bible believers are stuck? Because they're not moving forward with this. They didn't react to it the way we just did. I heard a few amens. Not bad, not bad for an Adventist congregation to say amen that Jesus is the light of the world. Hey, even better, there we go. Peer pressure can be a good thing. Can be a good thing, okay. But here's where the Bible believers are stuck. You are testifying on your own behalf so we don't have to what? We don't have to accept it. Your testimony is not valid. You have to remember where they stop. Where is their witness? Jesus says, he hasn't said it yet, but Jesus has a witness, has another witness. What is their witness? Their witness is what? Is their Bible. That's their witness. They begin and end with what the Bible says. God said it, I believe it, and that is good enough for me. The problem is, is that it's not good enough to get them to accept this particular testimony about the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. They fall short. They are right, though. Deuteronomy 19.15, the very law written by the finger of God says a single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. The rabbi said, if it's true that we can't condemn somebody on, their, on, on one witness, then it must be true that we can't bless anybody. Remember the argument from the, Greece, the, the least to the greatest, Kalva Homer. If God loves the lilies of the field and the birds who neither work, how much more will he love you? Jesus even says so. Jesus even says, you're right. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. He goes, I'm with you on that. Remember, he's the one that wrote that law, okay? And he said, I'm, I'm with you on that, okay? Two witnesses is needed. They have their witness, which is the, what? Their Bible, the law. Jesus has his witness too. We kind of talked about this last week, but he goes on to say, he says, oh, oops, sorry. I didn't put verse 18 in there. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to take my word for it. I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. I, I used that verse last week, that's why. So who is his witness, he's saying? The Father. He's saying God is himself is the witness. My Father is my witness myself. God told Israel that he would be with them. He was there. He wasn't somewhere calling them. He was present with them in the cloud and in the pillar and in the water. 
caring for them in the wilderness, he says that my father is the, the, the witness. I testify on my own behalf, and the father who sent me testifies on my behalf. The father, he says. Well, the ones again who only believe their Bible says, no, we don't buy that at all. They said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. First of all, I don't think that they believed, uh, they didn't believe the spiritual application that Jesus was making. They were trying to get at him and his earthly origin. Who do they believe his father is? Not even Joseph, right? Because Jesus was born what? Out of wedlock. And I think that they were actually trying to get at him that way. Where's your father? Where is your father? Because the entire argument that is going to begin to play out is genetic, it's lineage. They're going to begin to say that they uh, are allowed to be who they are. They are who they are. They are the students of the law because they're children of Abraham. And they're telling him and they're reminding him that he has no such place. Because he was born technically without a father. I love that Jesus didn't go there. I love that Jesus didn't say, hey, wait a minute. That's, you know, that's very low down. You're gonna bring my father into this? You're gonna bring my mama into this? He didn't go there. He didn't debate with them. He keeps the conversation where? He keeps it in heaven where he wants it to be. He's always talking about his father where? In heaven. So Jesus just lifts them back up. He takes them up back out of this, this uh, base place that they tried to go with this. So if Jesus, what he's saying is, if you guys would just listen, if you would, if you would walk with me for a little while, if you would just accept just a little of what I'm saying, enter into a bit of a relationship with me, you would know me and you would know who? And you would know my father. Come on, guys. I think I've given you enough evidence. In fact, he knows that he has, hasn't he? He's given them all kinds of signs. But they continue to debate because their only witness tells them that he cannot be who he claims to be. The very law itself, the Bible itself, they say, cannot, cannot allow you to be who you claim to be. So Jesus says, all right, you want to stay below? Let's keep the argument below then. Let's take the argument out of heaven. He says to them, you're from below. I'm from what? I'm from above. That's why this is not making sense to you, he says. I, live on, I, I have a different kingdom. I have a different set of rules I live by. I'm governed by someone and something else. I'm from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would what? That you would die in your sins. For you will die in your sin unless you believe that I am he. See, the world's got nothing for these Bible teachers' sins. All the world has for these Bible teachers' sins is what? Is the law. And does the law help when it comes to your sin? Nope, the law just reminds you of what your sin was, reminds you of who you are. The law was written for one reason and one reason alone. It was to point out that we are sinners. The world's got nothing for you, he says. 
They don't believe that about the law. They believe the law can do something more for them. And that's why he says, you're from below. You're thinking the way this kingdom uh, defines justice, defines mercy. Jesus said, I come from another kingdom. If you don't want to die, you believe in who? He says, believe in me. If you believe in me, you won't die in your sin. Tells them the difference between where he comes from and where they are at and what will happen to them if they don't believe. Remember, remember we pointed out the, the number of times in the Gospel of John that Jesus tries to point that out in his very name. He just simply says, I am. I am the light of life. I am the bride of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am he says. This gets their attention. So they quit messing around. And they finally just say it, all right? Forget the code then. You know, just forget the code. Who are you? You know, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's not do it the way the rabbis do it. Let's not put scripture upon scripture. They're looking at him and going, you're from Galilee, you don't know scripture anyway. So who are you? I love the answer, by the way. Jesus said to them, why do I talk to you at all? <sighs> Haven't you been what? Haven't you been listening? Why do I speak to you at all? New American Standard says, I told you from the beginning, I've told you. He says, you're not listening to me. Why do I speak to you at all? I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but the one who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They didn't understand that he was speaking to them about who? About his father, he said. I've told you from the beginning, he's absolutely from the Father. I am, I even use his name that he gave Moses that led Israel through the, through the wilderness. If they want to know what God or who God or what his name is that led you through Moses, you just tell them what? You tell them I am. So again, two different ways of approaching righteousness. Two different ways of approaching sin. Two completely different ways of approaching God. The Bible believers believe you approach God how? By Bible study. By knowing it better than anyone else. By attempting to obey it better than anyone else. Note the word attempting. Two different places. And then it's so beautiful, Jesus gives them the secret. He goes, I, I understand why you guys don't believe. I, I, I really get it. And, and, and I think that if you were with us through prayer meeting, that's the one thing that, that really opened up for us. It's really hard on me because the people that I'm hardest on in, in, in my spiritual walk is that I'm the hardest on Pharisees, modern and ancient. I love picking on Pharisees. And the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus won't let him go. He doesn't do what I do. I'll say the words, think that I've said enough, I have a preponderance of evidence, and then I'll turn around and walk away. Jesus, at the very people that are condemning him and telling him, you cannot be who you claim to be, 
because the Bible tells me so, Jesus hangs in there with them. Because these guys aren't going to go away. They're going to be with us forever now. All the way through chapter, up through chapter 16. They're going to be with us forever, these Bible believers. So Jesus decides to pull out all the stops. He's not speaking cryptically. It's not that he wants to keep something from them. He wants them to know. He wants them to know everything that he has come to reveal about the Father. So Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you don't get it now. He says, you don't understand. I'm from below. I'm from, you're from below. I'm from above. I, I get it. You don't get it. You don't understand. But when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will realize that I am what? that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. And hence the power of the love of God comes through in just these words. And the one act that is going to reveal God like nothing else ever has, and that is the what? The cross. They realize that he's, they'll realize he is the Son of Man when he is lifted up. See, this is how John refers to the cross. He did it in chapter three, verse 14. He says, as just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may what? May have eternal life, he says. The term is literally accurate in describing the act of crucifixion. They are literally lifted up between heaven and earth. And by the way, that is what Deuteronomy lists as cursed of God. Anybody who hangs between heaven and earth. Anyone who's been lifted up off the earth between heaven and earth is literally cursed by God. But it also has an extended meaning. Meaning, you also could use the same word as to be able to raise up or to exalt or to uplift. The lifting up can be an exaltation in an emotional sense. To lift someone up is to encourage them, to glorify them to a higher status. And I want to tell you that the act of the cross elevated humanity like it's never been elevated before. It places us in a position of exaltation. Bible believers stay below, unexalted, because the law only condemns them. The cross, we are exalted with Christ. Because he leaves our condemnation below and lifts us up, exalts us with him. It's a beautiful thing. If it were up to me, I wouldn't have said this verse to the Pharisees. Eh, they deserve it. If that's what they want, go ahead. Jesus gave even them the secret to eternal life. So the lifting up of Jesus has multiple meanings, as does truth. It applies to the cross, but it also applies to the ascension after the resurrection. See, without, without the cross, the resurrection doesn't happen. Without the resurrection, you and I don't become exalted. We don't get to be lifted up too. Paul will put it this way. He'll say, you know what? In some ways, you're not even here right now. In some ways, you aren't here. Because in, in, in every way, as long as your faith leads to this particular belief, as long as you believe what Jesus told you, he said that when Jesus died, you died. And by the way, when Jesus was raised up and put at the right hand of God, you were too. 
So Paul will say, right now, you're not even here. <laughs> you are at the right hand of the Father. You are exalted. You are lifted up with him. So the other meaning is to be, to be completely glorified in the Father. Only Jesus, only the Son of Man had that glory before. But because of what he decided to do, you and I can have that glory because we believe in his word. The cross does more to validate Jesus' true nature and the true character of God than anything else had ever done before and will ever be done after. A lot of people are waiting for some further revelation. We're waiting for something further to happen to us, to be revealed to us. After the cross, there is no further revelation. Jesus said, you want to know who God is? All you have to do is look at me. If you've seen me, Thomas, you've seen the Father. There's no other revelation of God coming. By the way, what more could he do if we were wanting it? And unfortunately, the Bible believer always asks for more. Because their witness isn't sufficient. Their witness carries the condemnation of the world below. They don't have anything else more. The rest, we get to believe in the living word. See, sometimes we forget that when we look at these Bible believers who were opposed to him, we're looking back through the cross. For them, the cross hasn't happened yet. And those words in verse 28, those, those words where he says, then you'll begin to understand. So we look at them and, and, and like me, you, uh, you know, I feel better about myself because I'm standing on the, on the backs of dead, you know, of dead Jewish leaders so many years ago, of dead Pharisees, of dead legalists. And I forget that they're not going to understand until when? Until after the cross. A, a, a position that you and I are privileged to be at. We get to now go back to these stories. We get to now put on God's glasses and see what these stories look like, to be able to see it through God's eyes. It's the one act. The power of the cross is to figure out who Jesus is. Because look what the power did. As he was saying these things, many what? All he had to do was mention the cross once. And now he's got what? Now he's got believers Amen. where he once had condemners. Amen. All he had to do was just mention it. And in prayer meeting, this is what we noticed, is that the crowd that doesn't know what to do, the crowd that's torn between this, this loving little rabbi from Galilee and also all the religious leaders that all their lives have been the influence in their life and, and going back and forth, the crowd all of a sudden begins to shift when he begins to talk about the cross. You get more and more who once condemned him and now believe, and all he had to do was just mention it once. When the Son of Man is lifted up, you'll begin to what? You'll begin to believe, you'll begin to understand. See, he did that in, in, in Luke, he went into the synagogue, and the first words that he spoke to the people, he said the first words of his ministry, he quotes from Isaiah 61, saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. 
anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go what? Let the oppressed go free. See, he's speaking to Bible students who are oppressed by their own Bible study. They won't go with God beyond what the words say on the page. And they are oppressed. They're condemned. And Jesus said, freedom is what I bring. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will what? And the truth will make you free. We know what Jesus means here. It's freedom from sin's condemnation. It's freedom from the world's condemnation. It's freedom from the guilt and the shame that our, that our sin has brought upon us. The word on the page can't do that. The word on the page just continues to remind us It's the only freedom that matters to Jesus. If they would just come to him, they wouldn't die in their sins. He answered them very truly. I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a what? Is a slave to sin. You guys aren't gonna get out of this. Your slavery is going to continue. No matter how much you read, no matter how much you study, no matter how much you pray, no matter how good you think you can become. Because unfortunately, from here on in, I begin to understand more the Bible believer's argument than I do Jesus. Because look at the way they react to this. He says, we're descendants of who? We're descendants of Abraham. And we've never been what? We've never been slaves to anyone. They tell the country rabbi, you don't know who you're talking to. So again, where is their allegiance where is their hope? It's in words written about Abraham, written about a man who's been dead for 3,000 years. But we've never been slaves to anyone. Now I know what I would have done if I were Jesus. You weren't? Hmm. What was that whole 400 years in Egypt thing? But thankfully, I'm not Jesus. And, I, and Jesus doesn't make fun of them, okay? <laughs> but what he does, he does, is that he makes sure that they know, he makes sure that they understand. He doesn't make fun of them. He says the slave doesn't have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there where? Forever, he says. So if the son makes you free, you are free what? Free indeed. You guys are enslaved. You're enslaved to a genetic code that's been dead for thousands of years. You're enslaved to words on paper that constantly point out to you a better life but do not show you how to get to that life. In fact, it tortures you. No matter how good you become, you never will get there. Jesus said, I want you to have freedom. The word came off the page. He said to live in me, you can too. Walk with me, talk with me. Let me, the light, lead you in the wilderness the way that I led you out of Egypt. And he reminds us, as, as did Paul, that descent from Abraham is not measured by genetics, but by their behavior, by who they are. And he says, you don't measure up. 
I know that you're descendants of Abraham. He goes, you know what? But you don't measure up. I know you're descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to what? You look for an opportunity to kill me because there's no place for you in my word. I declare what I've seen in the Father's presence as for you, you should, you should do what you've heard from the Father. And they answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. If Abraham were your father, you'd be like him. And Jesus said, and you're nothing like him. You're absolutely nothing like him. Abraham wouldn't kill somebody for telling him God's truth. So at every turn, Jesus is trying to turn them from that argument. At every turn, he's trying to show them where freedom lies. They try to deflect. I believe they know he's right. I really do. I believe they know he's right because there's a desperation in them. What happens to us when we begin to lose a debate? We get desperate, don't we? And there's a desperation in their argument is, 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 the, is the way that I see it. And Jesus said, Abraham's not your father. You're indeed doing what your father does. And they said to him, we're not illegitimate children. We have one father, God himself. Notice where they go with the argument. Who are you to tell us about who our father is? Again, they go back to that. They go back to that horrid base argument, that rumor about him. We know where you came from. And I think that this is what Jesus wanted them to say. We have one father. Who? So they abandon the Abraham argument and they say, God, this relationship with the law, this genetic one with Abraham, like I pointed out, is dead. But it's all they have. It doesn't save. And how do we know it doesn't save? Are they acting like saved children of God? No. So we see it in their what? We see it in their fruits. I know that the relationship that they have with the Bible cannot save. Why? Because they don't act like it. They don't have the fruits of salvation living out their life. Here they are wanting to kill somebody because they don't like the way he sounds. They don't like the way he treats people that the way they treat people. He doesn't like, they don't like the fact that he loves the people that they hate. See, but it's all they have. So then Jesus moves in for the kill, rhetorically moves in for the kill. What does this oath and outward obedience and genetics to the Father laugh? What does it lack? What is, what is missing here, if you will? He said to them, if God were your Father, you would what? You would love me. And there you go. They can study all they want, the letter on the page. You can study all you want, the words on the page, it lacks one thing. What does it lack? It lacks love. The Bible can't love you because in, in, in essence, it is an inanimate object itself, right? The word on the page cannot love. If, you, if God were your father, you would what? You would love. 
And it isn't just, he says me, because right now it, it's, 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 it's him that they foisted all of their hostility and their self-righteousness on. But he doesn't mean just me. If, if God were your father, you would love. You'd love the guy that I healed and sent into the temple. But no, you condemned him. You'd love the Samaritan people that I just told through a woman at the well where salvation comes from, but you still despise them. Later on, they're gonna do it in chapter nine, the man born blind. They're gonna drive him out of the synagogue. Jesus said, it's not that you would, it's not just that you hate me, you hate the people I love. For I came from God and now I'm here. I didn't come on my own, but he what? but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't accept my what? You can't accept my word. You cannot accept my word. You're from your father, the devil. Well, if your father's not the father in heaven, there's only another father, and who is it? They know that, you know? They understand that when he says it, there's only one or the other, okay? Maybe they wouldn't have said it out loud, but Jesus just did. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Which of you convicts me of sin, he says. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is because you are not from God. He points it out. You guys are letting me stand here. You really believe I'm a heretic. You would have had me in chains a long time ago. They've got the power to do so. They've already sent one army after him, but his word was so eloquent and so full of grace that they came back born again and they couldn't arrest him. And he said, what sin have I committed? You believe I'm such a heretic? You believe I'm a demon? Why haven't you arrested me yet? If you were God's children, you'd recognize the son. You'd recognize the one child of God that has come to reveal the father's love for him. But since they seek to kill him, they're marked as children of the devil like Cain, who was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. But by contrast, Jesus' truth, his, his sinless behavior, testifies that he is the true son of God. Real quick, I gotta get through it a little bit. It gets very ugly, because when self-righteous people don't, have, don't like having their sinfulness pointed out, they resort to one of two weapons that people hopelessly losing a debate resort to. One is they lie, and the other is name-calling. And so we'll start with the name-calling. The Jews then answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a what? That you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? I always loved that Jesus, Jesus said that uh, he didn't mind being called a Samaritan, okay? He says, I don't have a demon. He doesn't even announce the Samaritan thing because he's already given salvation to the Samaritans. He's already loved them through this woman at the well. But he will not let you call him what? I am not de demonic. I don't have a demon, but I honor my what? I honor my father and you dishonor me. So look what honoring the Father gets him in this world. You are of this world, he says, I am from the other world. 
Honoring the Father gets him what? Gets him dishonoring here. Their self-righteousness blinds them to that fact. They've got the law on paper. Jesus is the law become flesh. They look at the one being that fulfills the law on paper and they call him a demon. They call him the devil. So one thing that's been pointed out to us is the thing that set Jesus apart from other rabbinic ministries is that he spent the time with people that they would never spend time with. Their self-righteousness would allow them to. He loves them. So always remember this, when you choose to love somebody that the Bible believers of the day don't, don't believe that they deserve, you're gonna be what? You're gonna be dishonored. That's a hard thing when it's your own church, amen? But it will happen. It has happened. It's happening, and it will continue to happen. He says, you do all this, but I, seek my, I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the what? And he is the judge. So the selflessness triumphs over the selfish. One who seeks his glory is the father. His words claim this, and he adds that uh, what will be in store for all who will keep his words. He says, if you just listen to my words, you'll never see what? You'll never see death. He's trying to get them back on that path, the path to eternal life, what he came to do to free us from our condemnation, no matter what that condemnation may be, even if it's a lifeless, dead Bible study. Even they would say, ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So they see an opportunity here. Like I said, let's go through real quick this. They see an opportunity to further it. They said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, so did the prophets, yet you say whoever keeps my word will never what? Will never taste death. They see an opportunity to strengthen this argument. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets who died? Who do you claim to be? So they believe that the Bible teaches that what made Abraham exalted, what made the prophets exalted, was because they kept his word. Is that true? Let's just start with Abraham. Did Abraham obey God? Did he keep his word? Was Abraham perfect according to the law? No, the first thing he did with the covenant was break it. Right? And why was Abraham considered righteous? Because he what? Because he believed, because he had faith. We got you, he said. Abraham's dead and he kept the father's word. Actually, no. What Abram did was believe and his faith was credited as righteousness. The prophets are dead. They heard the father's word direct. Jesus could remind them, yeah, and you killed them. I wouldn't be bringing up the prophets. But they say, who do you claim to be? He doesn't deny the charge. He claims to be Abraham's very prophetic vision. He said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see what? That he would see my day. Real quick, when he, when he was following uh, the father's orders to sacrifice Isaac to him, it said that he lifted up his eyes and, and he saw three days journey away. He saw where they were going. He saw the mount that they were heading to. And yes, that mount turns out to be Moriah in Jerusalem. But they see the mountain, if you will, of sacrifice, the sacrifice of the son. 
Jesus said he is the fulfillment of the sacrifice of Isaac. It's what the rabbis taught. He looked up and he sees Jesus' day. He claims not only to be the father that called Abraham out, he claims to be the one that gave Abraham his vision, the very vision that he saw salvation for Isaac. He can only be claiming to be one. Jesus said to them very truly, I tell you, before there was Abraham, what? I am. After they accused him, saying, you're not even 60 years old yet, and you claim to have seen Abraham? Jesus said, I'll go one better. Before Abraham was what? I am. So in Jesus, the truth is found more than just the words of the Bible. He leaves it, he picks it up off the pages. Remember, he already told this in chapter one, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In 14, chapter 14, he'll say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth has its final revelation through the teaching of life of Jesus while he was here. It's right here. He said, the truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? But not a freedom found in, in, in what you're looking for, where it's at. Not a freedom found in the page. Freedom only found where? In the Son. For it's the Son that makes you free. And if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. See, the law only brings what the law can bring. Only what's revealed on the page. The law says this. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to what? Shall surely be put to death. It's repeated in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 22, 22, those exact words. After talking about freedom, after talking about freedom from condemnation and from guilt and how they are truly set free, then I really believe that our scripture reading is exactly where it needs to be. Because you had a woman who was completely condemned by what? By the law. Is there anything else to do after this is said? What else can those words do for her? Nothing. Until the living word stands up in front of her, between her and her accusers. See, Jesus said, you won't, you, you won't get this way by just reading words on paper. You'll get this way by walking with me. You'll get this way by, by witnessing with me. By showing, you, by showing us the difference between darkness and light. That may be the word of God right there in, 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 in Leviticus. That may be the word of God. And I truly believe it is the word of God. But let me ask you, does that word right there hold light for our adulteress or hold darkness for our adulteress? Because there's only one thing that the law says to do with her and what is that? Bring the darkness permanently. See, their light is only darkness where darkness can take them because this is where they've put their hope, right here. What they're willing to do with their standard of self-righteousness, what they're willing to do and still be called children of God. Oh, I, I shudder to think. 
Because Jesus says, you judge by human standards, I what? I judge no one. And by the way, they've already judged her, haven't they? They've already judged her by bringing her to him. She was caught in the act. And yes, I believe it was all set up. I believe that they set this up. By the way, the law says the other guy, there's somebody else who's supposed to die here, and where is he? So what have they done with the word on the page? <laughs> They've edited it. Again, a legal relationship with God is a, it's an idolatrous relationship. I can make the Bible say whatever it is I want. Why? Because it's on the page. It's right there. It's on the page. I judge nobody. I think he was already sitting down. It would be easy to write. He knows everybody's hearts. He just wrote what was on their heart. And they begin to leave. I noticed as Arlene was reading this time, and every time it's read, I just, I just noticed it says that the elders left first. Their righteousness would not allow custom to be broken. Always the eldest leave first. It's the place of honor. So even, even in shame, the elders get to leave first. Believing that they're exalted by walking away. It's a difficult dilemma. If he tells them to let her go, then they'll accuse him of breaking what? And you can't be anointed of God if you are going to break his law. They've already used that argument against him. And if he tells them to stone her according to this law, then he'll be in trouble with the Romans because he didn't get permission from the Romans to kill, him, kill her first. And if you cross the Romans that way, then they may have something for you. You think you're in charge? You think you're greater than Pilate or Caesar? Then we'll take care of, your to, take care of you too. So in his response, in his response, it's the only way that he diffuses that. See, in what they want in this, in, in not the standards, but in the standards of the law, what they want is that they get to kill the whore and they get to kill Jesus in one act. And in his response, he fulfills that verse by showing her what? By showing her compassion and mercy. See, he took the law off the page. He takes it off the page and he does something that nobody expects. He fulfills the law by showing his compassion and his forgiveness. See, those are quick to pass judgment on others, act as if they're guilty of no sin themselves. So Jesus just reminded them who they were and, and, and their condemnation. Jesus doesn't judge the woman one way or the other. He'll let her freedom bear witness. Judgment on her is clean. She's free from judgment. She's free from the condemnation of her sin. Because Jesus will say that. He says, I don't judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. What? I don't judge anyone who does that. Because I came not to judge the world, but to what? To save it, to save it from that very condemnation. People who believe that they're keeping the word, but actually violating the word in doing so. 
The one who rejects me does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I've spoken will serve as judge. Any of us who still believe that she deserves stoning to death, we're not hearing who? We're not hearing his word. So the passage is just where it belongs, isn't it? Even if it isn't in the narrative. John may have done, or the editors, if you will, they may have done what Hollywood does all the time. It's a flashback scene, or it's a dream scene. The reality was, was that he was there and, and in chapter seven, and he was there at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter eight, and the editor said, you wanna see these words in action? Look at this story here. I think it's right where it belongs. So Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one what? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, don't sin again. See, for 2,000 years, this story has provided caution to the church. Because what have we argued about? What is the, what is the one sentence that jumps out at you here? <laughs> See, because when we begin to argue as to what he was saying, you know, well, he, he gets, she gets justice, uh, she gets mercy and forgiveness now, but if she goes out and sins again, then forget it. But what's beautiful is that he's going to let her actions tell the story of whether or not she believes. And as far as we know, was she? Did she? Go and sin no more? Well, I don't know, there's this, this idea that he, she had to have seven demons cast from her. This idea that she's simply just who she was. But her actions, because the next time you see her, she'll be at the foot of Jesus, washing him, washing his feet with her tears and with her hair. Those who've tasted mercy in relation to their own sin will be merciful and tender and long-suffering towards others who struggle with sin, even when the sins appear willful and perverse. And I think that's why we have the argument as to whether or not she only gets it if she gets up and sins no more. I'm still siding with the law on that. She may not get it now, but she'll get it later. But this is the truth that sets us free. This is why this story belongs here. So I'm glad it reminds us of that. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, <clears throat> tells a story of a friend of his who was a social worker in Chicago. And this woman showed up in his office one day, young woman, uh, maybe not even 20 yet. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm faced biblically, he said, I'm, I'm faced biblically with an actual prostitute. She's a prostitute that's come see me. And she's confessing all kinds of things to me. In fact, she's telling me about her little girl and, and the horrible things that are happening you know, in their life. And, and as a social worker, he says, you have, to, you have to understand, I'm bound, okay, by what I hear, so I wanted her to be quiet. I wanted her uh, to not condemn herself. I'm, I'm bound by, you know, to report this. So he just blurted out to get her to, to be quiet. He just blurted out. He says, why don't you go to a church? 
And he said, I'll never forget the look on her face of incredulity when he said that. She said, church? Why would I go to a church? They will only make me feel worse. So Yancey is about to write a book about Jesus, truly Jesus, and he said, what I don't understand in the 2,000 year history of Jesus Christ and his body is he said the very people in today's age, the very people flocked to Jesus. The very people that are repelled by his church are the very people that found their home in him. They came to him. They followed him around for days. They would forego eating in order to hear his word. Yet today, there's no prostitute on the street thinks that a church loves them, thinks that a church would do anything for them, or even believes that they belong here. And how do we know that? They're not here, are they? So the story may be exactly where it's supposed to be, but in a lot of ways, the church has left the New Testament on the page the same way that Israel left the Old Testament on the page. And it's simply just a story to read. It's just on the page. And we, and we believe because it's new, because it's better, because it's Christian, that it can save us too. And actually, no, it holds condemnation for us, doesn't it? Because here it is, I know the story. But there's not a prostitute here who wants to hear it because of what I've taught them. So I'm happy to be reminded that the word isn't found by studying more and studying deeper. Please study. Had to say this in prayer meeting the other day, didn't I? Please study. Please get better. Please stop sinning. Please. But when you do, <laughs> you don't have to live in the condemnation or the shame. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that woman got up and went right back to the street, what does she have? She still has Jesus' love and his compassion, still can come back and return. In fact, she will. She'll show up at a banquet she wasn't even invited to in order to be with him. So the living word. He keeps on teaching us, and I'm, I praise God that he reminds us of who he is and who we are today. The Gospel of John.